My name is Tim Ayers. I'm an alcoholic. I'm not grateful to be here tonight because I never thought I would be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where people could see my legs. <laughs> and if you know me, if you know me, you know that uh, I think a trip to the podium is an opportunity to express my gratitude to Alcoholics Anonymous. I think respect for the podium, respect for the group, and respect for Alcoholics Anonymous is what develops self-respect in ourselves. And so uh, I was asked by Monica to do what, uh, what we're sometimes called upon to do, and that's share my experience, strength, and hope. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and tell you a little bit uh, of what, it was, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And, and I think it's important that we focus on that. And we've heard people talk about it uh, from the podium for as long as we've been here. We hear them talk about uh, Chapter 5. You know, they read Chapter 5, and I see people go to the podium, and they say, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do when we come to the podium in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the subtle difference is, is what I was like is completely different from what it is like. What it, it, what it is like is arrests, hospitalization, incarceration, car accidents, vehicular homicide, and the laundry list of catastrophe that we've left in the wake of our drinking and using. That's what it is like. That's what it was like. And, and you know, I differentiate with what I was like because it's the essence of why we're here. This program has little to do with drinking and much more to do with the way I treat myself, the other people on this planet, and what my relationship with God looks like. And what I was like is what we're all like, I think, if you're sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was selfish, self-centered, dishonest, and afraid. I was full of pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, and sloth. I had defects of character. One of the things I did in the time that I was out there is I drank, right? And I started drinking when I was 12 years old. Happened the way it did for a lot of us. Neighbor kid and I got a hold of a bottle. It was Chevis Regal. I was a top shelf drinker my whole life, you know? And I did what we do if you're an, if you're an alcoholic. I drank to excess that night. I was, uh, uh, I was not polite. I was not cooperative and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't anything to be proud of. And what happened having drank to excess is at 12 years old, I got poured onto the uh, porch at my parents' house and my mother came out and she looked at me and she said that thing that she would say repeatedly for 27 years, Timothy Carl, what are we gonna do with you? And I didn't start drinking every day after that. But I'll tell you what, I drank every chance I got. And when I was 13 and I was 14, I was 15, I was looking for alcohol every chance I got. When I was in, uh, when I was in <clears throat> ninth grade, you know, it was all about the shoulder tap and getting that bottle of Southern Comfort because we were going to hang out with the big kids at the football game. And if you had a bottle of Southern Comfort, you were somebody. That's just the way it was for me. And I desperately needed to be somebody because I was not comfortable in my own skin if I was not sufficiently medicated by alcohol. 
And I, you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in, you know, it started in kindergarten with me, man. I can tell you it was Ellen Katz. It was her, you know? And then when I was in fourth grade, it was Suzanne Lane. And then it was Sandy Buno. And, you know, when we got to seventh grade, it was Tammy, uh, it was uh, Cindy Dotlow, you know? And I'd crush on them, just crush on them. But completely unable to establish any kind of connection with another human being. You know, and, and I was in seventh grade and I'd already had, it was at or about that time that I had that experience with alcohol, but, but without sufficient liquid courage, it was almost impossible for me to have any kind of successful conversation with, a, with somebody that I had an interest in. Right. And I was infatuated with these people. And Cindy was the one, man. She was the one. And I, I developed sufficient courage that I rode my bicycle over to her place, to the house that she was, you know, was probably three or four blocks away. It's a long ride. You know, and I got over to her house and I was on the sidewalk in front of her house and couldn't walk those 20, 30 steps to the front door just couldn't do it. And I was out there on that sidewalk and, you know, she never came out. And I was out there until it got dark and, you know, got back on that bicycle and I rode home. It was the ride of shame. One more time, I was unable to do what most people do with such ease and comfort, you know? And the interesting thing about that story is that it was not done with that single incident. And when I was in ninth grade, I got a hold of a pint. A bunch of us kids were out at Shakey's in the San Fernando Valley because that's what we did on football Friday night. And I had that pint and Cindy was there. And you know what? I had a little, a little liquid courage going and I walked up there and I said, you know, I got a pint. And we went out behind that Shakey's and I had a pull and she had a pull and I had a pull and she had a pull and went inside the Shakey's. We sat in that booth sat across from each other. We did that staring game where I looked into her eyes and she looked into my eyes and we melted together like butter. And alcohol was my solution. It did everything I needed to do to function in this society, to be a part of. And I drank, man, I drank and I drank and I drank and I chased that. I chased that from the time I was told to the time I was Two months shy of my 40th birthday, 27 years of nothing but drinking. There was a lot of the stuff in, you know, that I got involved in, but there was nothing like alcohol. I'll tell you what, I never blacked out on an eight ball of cocaine. <laughs> alcohol did the trick, right? And when I was, uh, when I was, uh, it was March, 1978, I had a drinking buddy. He was in 12th grade, I was in 10th grade. And he would drag me around the stuff and, he was everything I ever wanted to be. And he, you know, we were drinking uh, Bud Talls and his Camaro and just going and doing stuff. And other people wouldn't go down to other high schools to watch the football team, but we'd go do it. And man, we were just, it was all great with this guy. And then in March, he was in the front, he was in the driveway of his house and he was shot to death. Completely inexplicable. To this day, they don't know why he got it, but he took a 22 round to his nose. And that was it. And then six months later, I was, uh, you know, it was another girl who I was infatuated with and she wanted to go home from a party and drunk as I, uh, 
uh, you know, as I could get, still able to drive as, you know, some of us did. I drove her home and I came back and I parked out in front of that house in San Fernando and I was six uh, cars shy of the house on the park side. I got out of the car, I started walking and I was drunk. I don't know if I said something, but I wasn't in the neighborhood that, I, you know, some people might've thought I should be in, be in. And so six or eight of them got a hold of me, broke a bottle over my left shoulder. I went down to my, a little bit and I took a knife to my back. I spent three days in the hospital, you know, and my mom was sitting there, there she was one more time, Timothy Carl, what are we gonna do with you? And that was the way it was. And you know, that first day, you know, that night, couple of guys in blue showed up and they asked me some questions and I was you know I was drunk and uh but on that third day they were they were going to release me my mom was there two detectives from the Los Angeles Police Department walked in and they uh they had some questions for me did you know these guys could you spot them in a lineup did you get any names anything familiar and it was all a blur because I was drunk one more time I was drunk and uh they said something that profoundly changed me. They said, we suggest you go back to school and you don't mention this to anybody because these are the people, these are the kind of people who don't like witnesses and there's absolutely nothing we can do to protect you. And so just go back to your life and pretend it never happened. And from that moment forward, that, con that situation that had happened with my friend Ken and that situation that happened uh, to me and the response of the big people being, we can't help you, it sent me on a trajectory of, we're all in this alone. You better get your kicks in because there's absolutely no way you're gonna know when it's gonna come to an end. And I drank with reckless abandon from that point forward. And I was a blackout drinker and I had, uh, you know, I went to college, I got, you know, kicked out of there because I wouldn't show up. I ended up working in a catering house in the San Fernando Valley as a mechanic, got back into night school. I didn't fall all the way to the bottom, but I, you know, crawl up a little bit and take a fall down. And I ended up going to graduate school and I got a good job. And, you know, I met a, you know, I knew a gal and she liked to drink and I liked to drink. And I'll tell you what, if you're an alcoholic, that's a fantastic basis for a long-term relationship, <laughs> you know? And I, you know, I've got, I'm fond of that woman today, but I'll tell you what, the second I said I do, and we got, we're walking down those steps, I thought this is not what I wanted to be doing right now. Because I, I made my decisions based upon the circumstances of my life in the context of alcohol and drugs. <laughs> And I was always looking for the instant fix. I thought the best thing to do was to paint rust. And if you were in the United States Navy like I was, you understand what I mean. If you're not chipping the paint and taking away the rust and you're just painting over the rust, all you have is some underlying corrosion working away. And that was the story of my life. You know, when I, we got married, uh, and uh, it was, you know, there's no kids. We got a house. Then we, you know, we're in default under a mortgage. Credit cards were passed due. She was gone, the dogs were gone, half the furniture was gone. 
And then on uh, February 11th of 2002, she called me and she was not in a good place. She was in that dark, scary place because she was a drinker. She was a drinker the way I was a drinker. And uh, I knew that she just didn't want to take another breath. And she asked me to come down to the place she was staying at. And so, you know, I was a couple bottles in. Wine was my thing at that point. And uh, I drove down to that house, 19 Tanglewood in Aliso Viejo. And I know exactly where that house is today. And I showed up and we drank. And she told me how terrible it was and how just, just the despair of taking breaths. And I wasn't happy either. And we went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I couldn't find her. And I looked, uh, I went to look for her outside and out back. And she was crouched next to the air conditioning compressor and she was in a house coat or a robe and her hair was a mess. She had a cigarette in one hand and she had a, had a pale orange juice in her other hand. And I knew what that pale orange juice was. And I asked her, I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm getting ready for work. This is the way I get ready for work every day. And we hadn't been together for months. I had no idea what it got to for her. And uh, uh, we talked about it and she said she wanted to see her doctor. And so we called her doctor and I took her over there and she was in with that physician for 45 minutes and the doctor came out and all the doctor did was hand me a script. And on that script was one word and it said detox. And I had built my whole life on solving my problems with alcohol. And I was confronted with a piece of paper with one word on it and a woman that I had deep affection for. And we went back to, uh, we went back to 19 Tanglewood uh, because we knew that there was some things that you know, needed to happen if there was gonna be any significant breakthrough for her. Cause that doctor had asked me, do you have any idea how much your wife is drinking? And I said, you know, to myself, I said, who measures, you know, <laughs> the people who measure are in the other room, we know that now, you know, thank God for Al-Anon, I love Al-Anon. And uh, I had no idea, she was drinking a half gallon of vodka every two days. And uh, we had a friend, I was the best man in their wedding, and he was the best man in our wedding. And we'd gone to college together. And then fella Jeff, he, uh, he would drink with us. And probably, oh, I'd say it was probably 2000, maybe 2001. He would, uh, we, I'd call him up and say, hey, man, let's get together and do some drinking. And we, it wasn't really like that. We'd say something stupid like, hey, would you like to go to the movies? And then end up in a bar, right? And uh, I love this guy. What he would do when we'd go drinking, he would get a credit card, one of his credit cards, and he would take a hairdryer to it because back in the day, they used to run your credit cards and he'd run up these phenomenal bar tabs. And when they'd run his card, there'd be no numbers and no name. It was freaking beautiful. And I just thought, man, this guy's got it going on, right? And, uh, and the thing is, is that when we, you know, near the end of his drink, of, of my drinking, and he would, uh, he'd disappear for like 30 days. Say, I can't drink with you. I can't make it. And then, uh, then he'd show up again and we drank. And then he disappeared for like 60 days. And then he'd be back and we drank. And then he disappeared for like 90 days. 
and then he'd come back and you know he would we'd get together and you know we'd be drinking and three o'clock in the morning he's doing a big rope of cocaine and he'd look at all of us after he'd do that big gagger and he'd go man we really got to stop doing this stuff you know and and the reason why i called that and i ended up we went back to the house 19 tango what i got on the phone and i called that guy and the reason why i called that guy is what he was doing when he was doing that 30 and he was doing that 60 and he was doing that 90 is he was coming to see the people of Alcoholics Anonymous and he was relapsing, but he kept coming back. And when the time came for him to answer the call, he picked up the phone and I said, Jeff, we're in trouble. Can you help? And he said, I'll be right over. And he got on the phone with it. You know, he got on the phone with his sponsor and they did the AA thing. And at that moment, I went, after we were done with that call, I went out in the front yard and I stood under this big palm tree and it's still there at 19 Danglewood. And I had this sense, I had this sense of being wrapped in a warm blanket. And I heard this voice and it wasn't my voice. It wasn't a voice from the outside, but it was a voice that said to me, it's going to be different, but it's going to be okay. And I associate that today with what we call a spiritual experience, that flash of brilliance that moment of clarity where the window opens just a little bit. But I know today that that's not sustaining, that that moment of clarity or that flash of brilliance is not sustaining. And I think that's why you go look at the first edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll see that the 12th step is different. It says, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, but with time and experience they realized that there's something else going on here that it wasn't the flash of light for bill wilson that kept him sober it's what to topher talked about that when the time when times were tough he didn't wait for the call he went to the phone and he called out to other people right that it that the spiritual awakening that we talk about here is the idea that simple notion that it's more important that I do for you than I do for myself. That that's where the recovery is. That that's where the, spirit, the solution to the spiritual malady is. That it's in the love that I extend to my fellow man and my fellow woman. Not because I want something, but because I have something that I can give away. And it's the experience, strength, and hope that I've found in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I wasn't, uh, you know, it, I didn't get well right away and it took me a long time to get well but i did what we do around here i you know i went to this uh family group meeting that they had and uh it was february 12th is the day that that incident happened at tanglewood and uh that means that valentine's day was two days away it was a thursday and uh we put uh we helped at least get into south coast medical center and I was gonna go down there and I was gonna fix my marriage with a dozen roses on Valentine's day. And they said, if you wanna see your loved one, you need to go to this family group meeting. And so I went to that family group meeting and went in to see her. And that's where she told me, she said, I'm not coming home, you know? But I did do something. I went back to that family group meeting. And then I went back again. And the guy that ran that family group said, all these people who come here, they talk about their loved one. You come in here and you talk about the negative impact that alcohol has had on your life. 
Why don't you call that guy you called that day and see if he'll take you to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous? And that's what I did. And I'm standing here today because that's what I did, but not just what I did. But I'd hit my bottom. Willingness had met the absence of it. I was ready to follow through on that voice that I heard. So I went to a meeting at the Canyon Club. And I sat. And I didn't know what to expect. And I listened. And I heard. And I heard the people in Alcoholics Anonymous say things that I could identify with. The feelings that they had. What they were like what happened and what they are like now. I didn't hear so much about the people that went to jail, the people that went to prison, the people that got divorced, the people that got bank, you know, that went bankrupt. That didn't, that didn't matter to me. I identified with the way they felt and how they managed to get out of that, that they'd found the way out. And I did what we do around here, you know. I went to meetings and I didn't drink no matter what. And I went to meetings and I didn't drink no matter what. And I went to more meetings and I didn't drink no matter what. And the problem with that is by 2018 in March, I'd been painting the rust, just going to meetings, not drinking no matter what. And uh, if you read the, some of the literature, uh, Clarence Snyder, who was out of Cleveland, claims that Dr. Bob told him that there's two ways to get sober. One of them is the easy way. And the other one is to just go to meetings and don't drink no matter what. Because they were doing something in Akron and they were doing something in Cleveland. And Bill Wilson had done it when he got to, uh, when he got to Akron, they were doing the work. And so in March of 2018, I got one of the small notices from our friends at the Internal Revenue Service. It was an audit notice. And before I got married to my second wife, I was $350,000 into them. Because I was the guy who prepared his own tax returns, did it on the last day available after all the extensions had expired, based upon a shoebox of records, guesses and estimates. You know what, and I'm 25,000 short, I'll pay him in two weeks, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, It'll all come in. Another horse will come in at the track, right? Or my, some business opportunity will present itself. That's never happened. So it was 25 and 35. And I already told you it was 350. So in 2009, it's 40, 50, another year. It was $750,000 owed to the United States government. And I get a notice where they want to look at the records. And I wanted to kill myself. And, and one of the things that happens to us in Alcoholics Anonymous is some of us that have been running the game around here, that have been painting the rust, you get to a place where you just, you know, the fraud kept, catches up with you. The truth is gonna come out, that you're still full of defects of character, you've been no value to anybody else. And that's where you don't think the drink is gonna do it because the last thing a guy like me is gonna do is walk in here, that I am so impressed every time I see somebody who I know who goes out, comes back and stands up one more time. It's the most courageous thing you can see from a human being. 
to concede to their innermost self and everybody around them that they are powerless over alcohol, but they still have sufficient willingness to come in here and see what value they can bring to us. It's not what we can bring to them, it's what they're bringing to us. Their courage is what inspires me. And I was busy painting the rust, I wasn't gonna drink. I was thinking about which bridge. And I've been thinking, you know, my sponsor had moved to Fallbrook. I was completely without direction. I can, you know, we jokingly referred to that guy as my sponsor for show. I was driving down Alton. I'd been thinking about calling this guy. Some of you know him, it's Mitch B. And I called him one more time. Willingness had met the absence of it. I was ready to do something. And I called him and I told him what was going on. And he, he said, when's the last time you'd done a fear list? And I hadn't done a fear list in 13, 14 years. He said, do you have a pencil and a pen or a piece and a piece of paper? I said, yes. He said, I want you to write down the things that you're afraid of and I want you to call me back. And I did what he said. It turns out in our book, that's what it says to do. We wrote these things down and we looked at them. And so I wrote them down, I called them up, I read them to them, she's gonna leave, they're gonna take my professional license, the business is gone, I'm going to federal prison, and worst of all, when I get out, nobody's gonna like me. And he said, is any of that gonna happen by five o'clock? And I said, no. And he said, the most profound thing I've heard and I've heard it a different way, and I'm gonna read something in a second. But he said the most profound thing I've ever heard in a moment of crisis for me, let's just aim for midnight. And so that's what I did. And it's interesting, we read this, you know, we hear this all the time. It's a serenity prayer, I wanna read it to you. Some of it you know. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life, and supremely happy with him forever in the next. And I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for 19 years before I figured out that that's where we get one day at a time from. It's amazing what I've learned in the last four years. And Mitch said, uh, let's do the steps. And I was sufficiently willing. And so we did a first step uh, exercise. He, we read uh, step one in the 12 and 12. The first two words, who cares? If you're familiar with the 12 and 12, check, check it out. If you got one, check it out. It says, who cares? And Mitch said to me, that's how you run your life drunk or sober. Who cares if the tax returns are filed on time? Who cares if they're filed accurately? Who cares what effect that has on your wife? Who cares what the judge thinks? Who cares what your mom thinks? Who cares what your employees think, your employers think? Who cares is the story of your life? And if you don't change that, nothing is going to change. And he had me write a little 
narrative out about my relationship with alcohol so that I could see where it became a fatal progression. And there are men and women in this room who understand this path because when Mitch gave it to me, I gave it to them. And then we did a six step, a second step exercise on the, the concept of insanity, right? Because what he explained to me was that if it's a three-part problem and I have an allergy, which means that when I take a drink, the drink takes the drink and then the drink takes all the rest of the drinks because I cannot stop drinking once I start. I'm a blackout drinker and that's an allergy. I have a peculiar response to alcohol and that peculiar response is I take a drink, that drink takes a drink and I'm off and running. And then everybody else knows in here, you know, there's this, there's a, I actually am in this quandary now because I'm not sure what the obsession is. But what Mitch told me the obsession was, some people think the obsession is to drink. I didn't walk around thinking I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink. What I did was what it talks about in chapter three. This time it's going to be different. I'm going to cut the angle a little different. I'm going to cut it with water. I'm going to monitor my drinks. Health farm, sanitarium, do whatever it takes. I'm going to learn to control and enjoy my drinking. This time it's going to be different. And that's the insanity because it's not. Because if I take the drink, the drink takes the drink and I'm off and running and I don't know how it's going to end. And if that's what you experience, you think it's gonna be different, you take a drink, the drink takes the drink, then you've got an allergy and you've got an obsession. And so we're talking about the first half of the first step. And Mitch explained this to me, he goes, so that's the insanity. And then he said this other thing to me, you've got thought life unmanageability. I was like, what? Brent Walton explained to me that that M dash that appears in our uh, uh, first step, that M dash, that's a message that says that which follows amplifies and is more important that which precedes it. That the problem, right, isn't alcohol, that it's life unmanageability or thought life unmanageability. There's something wrong with the way we think. Our reaction and our response is not normal. And that's called defects of character. It's self will run riot. And then we did the third step. And for us, it was a little bit of reading. We got on our knees on Laguna Canyon Road. We held hands and we said the prayer. Take away my difficulties that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. What are the difficulties? It wasn't the ex-wife, the first one. It wasn't the current wife. It wasn't the Bank of America. It wasn't the Internal Revenue Service. That had nothing to do with my difficulties. The difficulties were my defects of character. Selfishness, self-centeredness, dishonesty, and fear. It was pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, and sloth. That those were the things that needed to be changed in me. Dr. Paul talks about it in his story. What's the nature of acceptance? Not so much that was wrong in the world, but what needed to be changed in me and in my attitudes. And that's the core message of Alcoholics Anonymous. What needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes? And how do I get there? I get there by using the, fourth step, the third step as a gateway 
to doing the rest of the steps. My surrender is to the program as a vehicle for me to get close to God. And what's my idea of God? It's developed from a few simple readings. It's that notion that love is everything. And that the absence of love is that that's what separates me from you. And that you're all just little extensions of God and so am I. And so we did, my friend Brent Walton gave me a little reading. And, you know, we have a meeting on Tuesday night that Topher, uh, uh, it was his, uh, it was his whim. And he thought it'd be a good idea if we had a meeting and uh, that we, it's affectionately referred to as the disapproved literature group because we don't read conference approved literature. We read the materials that they were reading in Akron before the book was written. And we read the materials that they used as step guides after the book was written, but ended up being printed by Hazleton for whatever reason. I'm a, uh, I'm an active member of general service. So if you want to talk to me about what's conference approved literature, I'd be more than happy to do it. But the idea is that it's an exploration into what this, what is the, what was the source material for the book? And, you know, and so this idea of love and I, you know, I had the pleasure of, of, uh, of talking in Garden Grove last Saturday night with Josh and he did just a phenomenal job of explaining the nature, source and extent of our program insofar as this concept of love is concerned. And I'll read this to you. It's in a little pamphlet that they're reading in Akron by a guy named Henry Drummond and it's called The Greatest Thing in the World. And it says this, the spectrum of love has nine ingredients. Patience, kindness, generosity, humility, courtesy, unselfishness, good temper, guilelessness, and sincerity. Because, you know, love's an action. We'll talk about what some people confuse love with in a second. Because after we were done with the third step, Mitch had me do a four-step inventory. And I did it exactly the way he wanted me to do it. And we did it exactly out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what we did is he sat me down and we read the instructions as laid out in the book. And he said, these are the instructions. And we read them. And it says, there are three columns on a resentment inventory, which is the first part of a three-part inventory process. You write down their names. You write down... Uh, the cause and you write down the effect and then if you read the book it says and then we prayed for them it's not well written it suggests that if you're in line and somebody gets 17 items in the 15 line uh, item line you're supposed to say the sick man prayer for them at that point that's not what it's for it may be nice to do that but the point is is that you draw a bold line you say that prayer so that you are divorced from all the malice, ill will, and hatred that you have for those people so you can see with clarity where you're to blame, what's your fault, where's your part, so that you can see your defects of character. And then he had me write another fear list. And he had me write down one more time the things that I was afraid of. And then I was to write down, he told me, I want you to write down whether or not it's real or if it's imagined. And if it's imagined, I want you to ask God to remove it immediately because there's no sense being afraid of monsters under your bed. 
But if it was real, I was to write down what my plan was. How was I going to address it? And he said this, just ask for the knowledge of God's will for you and the power to carry it out. What's the knowledge? Well, the knowledge is the plan, the intuitive thought. And pray for the strength to carry it out. And then we did, then we looked at the instructions that are set out on page 69 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you right now, you can go, go talk to your sponsor and ask them, where is, where is it in here that I'm supposed to tell you how I like to have sex? It's not in there. What it does say is that we're not supposed to be the arbiters of other people's sex conduct. And, it, and we, a few of us that are running around in here, believe that we're not to be the arbiter of anybody's conduct. That if I'm your sponsor, I'm supposed to be a channel. I'm not supposed to be the person that makes your decisions for you. I'm not supposed to decide who you date, what meetings you go to, where you work, or whether or not you buy lottery tickets. It's none of my business. Do you really want somebody who is unable to function with the internal revenue service in charge of your life? I don't think so. And so there's nine questions on page 69. And he said, you're gonna write their names and you're gonna answer these questions. And I did the work. And that's why it's called the work. It's the work. The inventory process, the amends, the admissions, and getting busy with other people is the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. Service is important, but service is not the work. I've had lots of commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been the setup guy. I've been the secretary. I've been the commitment coordinator. I've been you know, the, the speaker coordinator where I have to get better speakers than me for people. You know, That's what I've done is the service. And I've also done general service. I've been a GSR. I've been, you know, the secretary for District 12. I've been the alt DCMC. Right now, I got a great service commitment. I'm the commitment coordinator. Uh, no, I'm the, uh, the, this is crazy. The convention liaison committee chair. And that means we get to wear crazy t-shirts with Marvin the Martian. And it says, we are not from earth. We are from area nine. And we get to have fun at conventions. But it's not the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson talks about it in a story, and I probably got a couple minutes. I'm gonna confess this. I walked out of the Garden Grove Milano Club with this book that I borrowed, and I gotta figure out how to get it back. I used it in my talk last week. So I, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an amends to be made. On the bottom of page 14, this is what Wilson writes. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, now listen to this. Okay, you ready? perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. The solution to my problem with the Internal Revenue Service was in this book. Mitch put me on the path. And what happened is 
the service came in and they said it's a million dollars total. But what I'd done is I'd gotten busy and no guy showed up from the Internal Revenue Service and said, hey, we heard you're in tax trouble and you've been going to a lot of meetings. And so we've decided we're going to help you because you're special. It's not what happened. What happened is people like David Cunningham showed up, showed up in my office because he knew I was so afraid to fill out forms that he sat there while I typed 1099s that hadn't been submitted for years. And the tax lawyer said, how much are you paying them on all this old debt you have? And I said, I'm not paying them anything. You sent them a check, they know where you live. And so what he said was this, you can go online and you can make a payment you don't even have to open an account. You just put in your, your uh, social security number, a routing number and your account number. You send them some money. Just try it. See what happens. And I did it. One more time, willingness had met the absence of it. And I sent them some money. And business improved for me. And I sent them some money. And I was doing this almost every other day. Sending them money, getting a receipt. Sending them money, getting a receipt. Sending them money, getting a receipt. And through good fortune, hard work and active participation in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't kill myself or drink. What was a million dollar problem? Today's sitting right around $200,000. And I say these numbers not to impress you, but to impress upon you that whether it's $10,000 or $50,000 or a million dollars or a problem with your wife or your husband, or your kids, that the solution is always the same. Get busy in the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. Help people go through the steps. Not so I can have a life beyond my wildest dreams, or you can have a life beyond your wildest dreams, so that when that new person walks through the door, they can have a life beyond their wildest dreams. My name's Tim Ayers. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for letting me share.